thanks everyone for tuning in. I've got Eric Banks on the horn. Um, Eric, I'm, I just pulled this from your from your website. Uh oh. He was a composer, conductor, translator, vocalist, linguist, and ethnomusicologist. Uh, I know Eric uh, uh, as the director of the Esoterics, a Seattle-based um, choral group that performs uh, a lot of choral contemporary music. And I have had the privilege of recording him and his group uh, many times. Um, so I think, I think so. That's how I know you. Do you want to add anything else to that, Eric? I know you do. You just do a tons. Of, you do tons of stuff. Um, no, I mean I'm a Brazilian right now. <laughs> Yeah, where, where are you? Tell everyone where you are. I'm in beautiful Sao Paulo, Brazil. I can I can turn this around and show you <laughs> where I am. Okay, so yeah, so that's where I am. Did my camera just die? Look at that. What did I do? I don't know. Did you break it? I don't know. What did I do? Um. How could I possibly have broken my camera? <laughs> That's see. craziness. Why don't you try um, refreshing yeah. the uh, the Be Live thing? Reload site. That's craziness. I'll do. Eric has temporarily left the building, but he will be joining again soon, <clears throat> hopefully. Anyway, thanks everyone for tuning in. I promised Eric will be back soon. <laughs> he was showing us his digs, which look pretty, pretty sick. See all those buildings? Oh, there he is. Okay, showing the stream. Are you back? Yes, I'm back. <laughs> I, did, I only did is turn my laptop around. I mean, how temperamental is that? That's hilarious. Mm. Uh, Eric, yeah. what are you doing in Brazil? Uh, I am uh, waiting. I, I'm actually enjoying my time in Brazil as I wait to come back to the States. Um, I came to Brazil for Carnival. Um, and to do some research uh, also in the Amazon. I'm running a piece based on endangered plants um, that heal, that, that are turned into medicine to heal. And um, I did two different trips to the Amazon, one in January and one in March. And uh, I, I was actually, I've been to Brazil a lot in the last year, but um, I was in Brazil, I got to Brazil the day after Christmas, and I was here until February 8th. And I, I went home for 11 days and got an invitation um, to go to Carnival and to do the second leg of my research trip in Amazon, which is in out of the city called Manaus. So I went to Manaus at the beginning of March a second time and did um, a bunch more research. And then um, that was that was actually the same weekend that COVID outbreak happened in Seattle. So um, I then went from Manaus to, uh, I think it was five days in Brasilia, and I was supposed to fly home on March 13th, but um, I was told, no, you should not fly home because uh, everything in Seattle was uh, kind of going haywire. 
if you remember, because you were there. And I, I was blissfully ignorant to it all because I was in the Amazon and then I was in Brasilia. Like I, I just, I wasn't in tune with what was going on in the States. Um, I was supposed to fly home uh, via New York City and then go upstate New York to visit my parents and celebrate my mom's 75th birthday. And um, I was told, please do not, my husband told me, do not come to the US right now. Do not get in a plane. And so I didn't, I stayed here. And my flights were then canceled. My flights in April were canceled. My flights in May were canceled. And uh, I'm here probably until July or August as when everything blows over. But I have a really great apartment that I'm renting month to month. It's actually quite cheap to live here. Um, the, the dollar is very strong. Um, and, uh, you know, food is one fifth of the cost in the States. So um, I'm fine. I'm writing, I'm working and kind of get the esoterics to do stuff while I'm on here. So, um, yeah. So um, that's what that's why I came here. It's not what I'm ended up doing here. Right. Right. So. Eric, what most interests me about you is how you've made a livelihood as a composer and as a conductor, uh, sort of on the front lines of, I don't know if there's a better word, I call contemporary choral music, which is, um, you know, a style of it that a lot of people don't want to touch. And, and some of that's because it's very hard. Um, but there are other reasons maybe for that. And um, so I, I'm quite impressed by your ability to create a livelihood um, on this kind of unique, unique area in choral music. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you got into that spot as a composer. And uh, maybe we'll talk about your composer life first. Yeah, let's do them separately because um, I'm playing with my hair because I'm not used to the <laughs> it's not mirroring. You have to look in the mirror to fix my hair. It's so vain. Okay. So, um, so the the esoterics were founded out of my recital chorus as I um, as I finished my master's and doctoral degrees at UW. Um, I, uh, in general, at that time, so this is 27 years ago, 28 years ago, 1992. Uh, um, I was really bored with most of the choral music that I was in and that I had heard. And um, I, uh, and I, I mean, I, ha I had my undergrad degree at Yale and I had really good training there, but um, I still felt that um, choral music was very much within the Jesus box. Mm. And by that, I mean, uh, everyone, um, most concerts were sacred music. And it was it was an aberration to actually have a show or a program that was all secular, and that all the secular music had to do with the beauty of nature, and that, like the themes were really really closed in choral music, and that choral music audiences were sleepy, and that um, choral music singers were not all that inspired or were kind of lukewarm at best. And I just I was super bored with choral music, and I I kept thinking. Uh, choral music needs to do something else or it's going to lose its audience. So um, I was inspired by that idea to create programs that were more, uh, more thematic and that looked at themes that were more poetic rather than just like, oh, the, this is pretty music. 
And this is long before, uh, actually in the 90s, this is long before pretty music was in vogue. I mean, people were still doing pro programs with modernism. They were still doing programs with um, minimalism uh, and not not the holy minimalists, right? Not Goreski and Parrot and Tavener, but um, or before then. So uh, I, I was much more interested in music that challenged me as a musician and that challenged um, my audience as in terms of poetry and in terms of um, interpreting text. So, uh, and I, I also really love languages. So I really wanted to take that, the prism of a concert theme and throw it into as many languages as I could find. So um, I, I had studied a lot of languages in college and in graduate school and um, really wanted to to broaden the the scope of what was performable in a concert, and that's where I loved uh, speaking different languages, and I love translation of different languages, and that's been part of my composition. But it's another topic. Um, so, so that's really how the esoterics was born. Um, uh, for me, the the word esoteric means something that's within a small community or within a closed circle, and if the group is um, successful, it subverts that idea. So it includes the audience and everyone within the circle so that it's not like a secret understanding, but or like a secret handshake, but it's actually something that embraces everybody. Mm -hmm. How's that? That's great. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've been practicing that speech for a long time. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> so as a composer, you... Oh, wait, can I tell a story? Can I tell a quick story? So uh, we once did a concert at Bellingham, and this poor church lady um, refused to come to our concert because she didn't know what the, the word esoteric meant. Do you know the story? She thought esoteric meant erotic. Oh. Like, she confused the two words because they both start with E and end with ick. So um, so she, like, boycotted the concert and made a big deal out of it at the parish. It was, I think, of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in, in Bellingham. Wow. which is a beautiful place to sing. But this woman like freaked out. She's like, these people can't come to my church. So um, anyway, so know your word definitions, people. <laughs> so as a composer, you go around writing pieces for people all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into that life? How? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I, There's so, so many composers out there. Just let me throw, I, I'm constantly being approached with, um, you know, composer submissions and there are just so many people uh, writing stuff and trying to make a living doing it. I'm sure they want to know how you've done it. Well, I mean, uh, it's so annoying. No, you have to answer. So, I mean, so the, I, so what I would say is, um, first of all, I'm not that successful. There are composers that are way more successful than me. Um, but I, so I feel that my success as a composer is maybe 10 years later than my success as a conductor. Uh -huh. So I founded the Esoterics in 92. I started writing in about 2000, 2001. And so the careers are really different. Um, the only kind of overlay is that I had a fantastic um, test kitchen. So I could write something and the esoterics would perform it and I could rehearse it. And I didn't really make a lot of alterations to pieces as, the, as they were sung, because I kind of know enough about the voice to, to write what I want. And I'm also like, I bitch enough at the singers that, I, that they'll do what I want them to, even if it's hard. So um, I, 
but I, I mean, I get that when I when I bring a piece somewhere else, sometimes people are like, oh, this is really hard. I'm like, why did you hire me then? Like, it, we're supposed to be pushing the what the voice can do, right? And I'm not talking about extended vocal techniques. I'm just talking about like, oh, something's rangy, right? Something's a little low or a little high. So um, I, I will say that uh, about my career as composer, I pretty much follow the same thing as I do as a programmer for for contemporary choral concerts, right? I choose topics that to write about that are not the flowers in the garden. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like that aren't about Jesus, that aren't about, like that, that I mean, one more setting of Ave Maria. Do we really need one more Ave Maria in the world? <laughs> do we, do we? Yeah, yeah. Do we not have enough? Like, and, and a component, like as a, as a programmer, as a, as a, a lead person in, um, in a choral competition, like a choral um, composition competition. Uh, Esoteric has this polyphonous competition every year. Like I am looking for composers to give voice to, and those composers have to have a signature. They have to have an opinion. They have to be bringing something to the tradition that's not already there. So if you're, if you're submitting scores to me that are the same old texts, like what, really we need one more setting of Whitman? Really? Mm -hmm. One more. Just yeah, one more. Okay. What are you what are you gonna do with that that's different, people? Like, I mean, let's let's do something that's more contemporary. Let's do something that's that speaks to the the zeitgeist, right? That that speaks to where we are now, what our society's going through now. So um, and it doesn't have to be current events. It's it's it, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be biographical. It just needs to be something that's relevant. So I I'm very much looking for voices that are are creative. I'm very much looking for voices that are relevant, and and I do that when I choose text too. I don't have any different standards for my own music than uh, when I'm looking at composers in a competition. Most of the time now, I'm able to write pieces. Um, you know, someone will commission me because I have, and they'll say, "What's your idea?" They won't tell me what to write. They'll ask me what I want to write. That's an amazing uh, situation to be in. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to know if the test kitchen is like a peanut gallery. No. <laughs> no. Penny Kramer. Penny Kramer. <laughs> peanut gallery. No, I mean I think the test kitchen is um, like it's it's a place for me to hear whether something's successful or not. And the comments, the I mean the peanut gallery would be the comments from the singers. I um I obviously take them I take the comments and I hear them but I don't necessarily use them all the time because I'm after a, an effect you know and if and if, if singers you know a bunch of singers complaining about how hard something is isn't going to influence an effect yeah this is not yeah. so I mean I've pulled pieces because they're bad I mean I think all composers have done that mm -hmm. or I've altered them I made like serious revisions to a few pieces. But I mean, for the most part, it's tweaks. Mm -hmm. It's it's not. Um, I don't know. Also, I think a peanut gallery is a racist comment. You know, it's, it's, based, <laughs> it's based in heavy racism. Yeah. So I guess it has to do with African Americans sitting in a section of a theater and they eat peanuts. Is that really so, true? Yeah, I think it actually comes from a racist origin. You're yeah. making a weird joke. I no. Yeah. no. I but idea. I mean, you can go. Someone go and look that up. <laughs> etymology.com go i'm busy petty craver you look that up and you tell us <laughs> so eric i didn't know that the esoterics came first uh 
and then you composed yeah. shortly after. You oh yeah. Nikita. So I, so the thing that really got me interested in composition was um, the Fulbright. So when I, uh, so I started the group in 92 and then 97, 98, I went to Sweden for a year and I did a Fulbright there. Um, I studied in Stockholm and I sang with all these different choirs and, you know, studied with Eric Erickson, did all stuff. And um, while I was doing that, um, I had, I was kind of reflecting on the last few years of the esoterics or the first few years, first five years that it starts. And I thought, oh, you know, we commissioned a bunch of music and some of it was good and some of it wasn't great. And in those moments where we were doing pieces that I really didn't think were all that good, I thought, oh, I could write something better than this. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I told myself, no, you're not a composer. You're just, you arranged a lot of acapella stuff in college and you know your way around the choruses and orchestra, but you should really hire composers and pay composers for their work. And eventually um, I became really fascinated with this idea of linguistics and music, like a kind of serialism that uses um, vowels and consonant sounds and attaching them to pitch or rhythm in music. And it was something that I had never seen before in music. And um, so I started playing around with that idea and I did it in lots of different languages. I started with Latin and Italian because they have fewer vowels. And then um, I was in Sweden. So I played around with some Swedish poetry as well. And these are experiments. These were like, again, tests that I never really published. And then it started turning into um, actual composition work. So um, I just, it was just something I played around with, with that during that year of, of fellowship and or the, the, the fellowship. And it kind of blossomed into something around the year 2000, I started writing in, in earnest. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Do you write mostly for choir? Uh, yes. Although more and more I'm writing for instruments. So uh, the most recent commission that I'm finishing now is for choir and Pierrot Ensemble. And that's for a group called Ember that's in Manhattan. And it was supposed to be premiered in the middle of this month, but it's not. <laughs> Damn you, COVID. No, it's fine. I wasn't do done with it anyway. Do you like writing music? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. Um, I go back and forth um between it being my favorite thing and uh directing rehearsal being my favorite thing um i really love rehearsal i think it's super fun but um it just depends on who's in the choir like sometimes when like penny kramer is there i have a really hard time with her. <laughs> i know this is a weird, <laughs> i know this is a weird question but do you like your own stuff like at the end do you go god i god i love this damn piece i just wrote yeah or, I, some, yeah, sometimes I'm like, yeah. So, uh, one, uh, so often I get really surprised. So when something is like straight up acapella, like a octavo, um, it is, um, okay. Keep looking, Penny. You're going to find more. There's, <laughs> there's stuff in there about racism. I know it. So, uh, yeah. So I, uh, <laughs> I love that she's, chatting. Um, so I, uh, when it's straight up acapella, I can kind of hear what it's going to sound like beforehand. But when it's a bigger group, um, it's, uh, it's really harder to imagine. And um, 
it's then that I get like these incredible experiences um, in live performance. So there are a couple of recent pieces that I've written where I'm just like in the performance, I'm like in tears because it's so good and because it surprised me. Um, there's a piece I wrote for um, the Yale uh, Glee Club Alumni Association that was performed. Um, it's a piece called Hold, and it, it was uh, written for for like a reunion. So it was an emotional thing for me because I sang at Yale, and um, it was for the alumni association of the chorus that I direct that I that I sang in all the way to college. But it was like 600 people at this concert, and there were three choirs, and it was in Woolsey Hall, which is where the the big Yale performances are. Um, and it was um, it was a sound that I could never have imagined. The text was also super emotional. I worked with a poet who's a good friend of mine. Um, Octavia was there studying, and I and she had just gotten to Yale. Um, the the text uh, so so like a, a a protege of mine had actually gone in my footsteps to a, a college that I um, so it was emotional for that reason too. Um, and then um, the text itself was about staggered breathing as a metaphor for a society. And boy, is that relevant right now when all we're doing is wearing masks when we're trying to protect each other. So. This, this idea, the poet that I worked with, Anna Meek, um, was uh, a year behind me, but we sang together all the way through college. And she wrote this gorgeous poem about how stagger breathing can be a metaphor for society, how we breathe when other people need to breathe and, and vice versa. So we support each other. But this piece was for piano and for three choirs and the choirs were huge. And I didn't sing, I sat in the middle of the hall. In the hall, if you know, it's like, it has like three mezzanine, three tiers. It's this gigantic hall. Um, and I just remember being there with my family because they could they could uh, be there and experience the concert. Um, and it was just like the, the circumstances made it overwhelmingly emotional for me. Um, so there, there are pieces uh, like that, there are experiences like that where there's no way to predict how emotional you'll be. Yeah. Um, uh, I choose text that speaks to me on an emotional level. And if if it doesn't speak to the person I'm writing for, I sit down with them and explain to them why it's emotional. Like, and, and I and I do that with the audience too. I, I almost always um, require that I talk to the audience to give them context before a piece is performed. When people come to you with commissions, do they, you might've answered this already earlier, but do they come with you, uh, have text in mind for you or do they invite you to, Go find some text. Not, not recently. The most, uh, the most recent, I would say, five years. Um, I haven't set any. Um, yeah, I haven't set any texts uh, that someone else uh, has made me set. Like, I often won't take a commission if that's the idea. Yeah. Um, there is a choir in France where the director um, is uh, was interested in me setting a poem that he wrote. Um, but that commission's been postponed because of COVID, and I actually think the commission is going to revise. Um, and then there's another in Paris that I did set. Um, the, one of my most recent pieces is a drinking song, and the composer, the conductor, is a really good friend of mine, and he asked me to set texts by his brother. And there were five or six simultaneous poems about getting like shit-faced drunk, 
And um, I was like, this is really fun. And I had never, I'd never written anything long in French. So I really wanted to do it when I, when I read the poems. Um, and these are, I mean, these are friends of mine. So of course um, I want to do it because they want me to do it, but it, it was definitely a predetermined text that I had never seen. But that, that's the only one I could really remember. But a PSA for everyone who is even thinking about having you set a text, don't come to Eric with some Ave Maria setting. No. I mean, I, <laughs> no, guys. Jesus is great, but come on. <laughs> so, Eric, when you get when you get when you start on a commission, I'm just curious. Do you really have ideas um, kind of stored away that you pull from, or do you go through a process where you got to come up with some some new stuff? I um. I'm addicted to audiobooks, so um, the most recent commissions that I've done are texts that I have read or listened to that I really, really love. Um, I wrote a piece that was premiered last year that sets a text by Umberto Eco from the book Bottolino, which is a book I love, um, and it's a it's a text about um, Hypatia, who was like queen of the Amazons, and it's how she views uh, religion. It's a it's a text about basically um, God is beyond human description, and that we we are very feeble in trying to describe what God is. So um, so I like this is a text I really loved, and I um, was waiting for someone to kind of ask me to write something. And Gary Graydon, who's a American that that is actually a Swede now, but he he lived in Stockholm, and um, he's an old friend of mine, and he asked me to write something. And um, I had this text in mind. They were going on tour to Italy. It's an Umberto Eco text in Italian. So it was it was an easy sell because they were going to sing in Italian in Italy. But um, but I kind of have a list of things that I really would love to set. And when the right person comes to me, I do it. Um, but I've also approached conductors and said, hey, I have a, a really amazing idea. And I think that your group could do this. And they've come back with money for me when I do that, too. So it's it's a it's works both ways. Gotcha. Yeah. So do you have a do you have some favorite composers you're listening that you like right now? Um, I listen to pop music all the time. Nice. Just to I, I I am telling you I love Dua Lipa. I'm listening to her all the time right now. Um, and um, I'm writing an acapella arrangement for Esoterics to do as a virtual choir video of the Dua Lipa song. Um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, there are just certain bands and I, I, I just listen to pop music right now. Uh, and that's only in the last year that I've started doing that. Uh, in general, when people have asked me this question in the past, I say, I don't listen to music at all. I just don't like it. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to let you know that Penny Kramer is just not letting this go. Good. She, that's fine. she's saying it's not racist. Okay. Then, I mean, my source is weird, but I mean, you know, Penny, I mean, you're right next to racism in that whole thing about um, social class, but that's, I mean, that's fine. I You'll like, find it. Keep I, looking. I like, I like Penny. She's a... Huh? I love Penny. She's a total scholar. Diligence. She's... Yeah, she's going to hunt it down. She's going to find it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Eric, let's talk about esoterics a little bit. How, you know, you do some of the hardest stuff I've ever heard for choir. Um, okay. 
Thanks. And how, how many, what's the rehearsal process for that like? Oh, um, well, nothing right now. Um, wishful thinking is my rehearsal process right now. Uh, so uh, it's changed over the years. We used to, for many, many years, we were only twice a week, everyone came twice a week, six hours a week. When you joined the Esoterics, you committed to twice a week rehearsal. And um, that was the that was the go-to for like 15 or 17 years. I'm trying to think how many years. It's a long time. And then say 20, 20 years. Um, and then things really changed, I think, in 2015. Eh. Yeah, in 2015. So um, it ended up that, um, uh, I'm trying to think, oh, no, 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 in 2013. At our 20th anniversary season, I had a lot more singers and that I wanted to include because it's an anniversary year and I wanted kind of a couple of y'all come concerts. And to do that, I ended up dividing the group into smaller ensembles and each ensemble rehearsed a day a week. So no one learned the entire concert, but people learned parts of the concert. And then you have a big like finish with 60 something singers at the end. Um, so that was nice for a year. And then um, I got a lot of feedback from the singers that I don't wanna sit through a concert, I wanna sing a concert. And other singers were like, oh, I can only do once a week rehearsal. So, you know, they're bitching from both sides, right? People that want to do only once a week and people that don't want to sit through a concert and listen to a bunch of people singing. They want to sing. So, um, and I, you know, how do you balance that? It's really fun. So, um, so I eventually turned it into, um, uh, back into twice a week, but um, I also started getting a lot of, um, I, I want to. I don't want to call them problem singers. I will say that they were singers with <laughs> singers with um, work schedules that made it really impossible for them to have a predictable schedule. Yeah. So, um, so I decided to double up my rehearsals so that singers, those singers, could take part. And so I divided the group into um, a scheme or schedule that's like Sunday, Tuesday for one ensemble, and Monday, Wednesday for the other ensemble. And um, if someone had to miss a rehearsal, they could make it up by either swapping with somebody else in the opposite rehearsal or um, coming to, you know, scheduling it so that um, they were getting the same numbers of hours of rehearsals as everybody else. So, and that's currently where we are. Um, there's a Monday, uh, Monday, Wednesday group and a Sunday, Tuesday group, and they rehearse separately. Um, some, of the, some of the music is different between the two ensembles, but most of it's the same. So when we come together, um, uh, there's this sigh of relief because people um, can stagger, breathe more, they can phrase more as a section. And it, um, it actually, I, I love it. I love being able to hear a small ensemble rehearse. Like if it's only 12 or 16 singers, you can hear every single singer and how they're contributing to the ensemble. And then when they come together, there's just a lot more support. So they actually sing better because they're in a more supportive, like there are more singers singing at the same time um so that's that's kind of where the the scheme is right now or the the schedule is right now and how many rehearsals um, would you say you have before a concert last year was my sabbatical and we did five projects and each project was five weeks long mm -hmm. so um for a couple oh no where did you go eric Eric. Did I hit something? No, there you are. 
you hear me now? Yes, yes, you're good now. How about now? Yeah, you're great. Okay, sorry. No, no, it's fine. Okay, so uh, so uh, what was I saying? Something about, what did you ask me? Singer's um, schedule. Um, well, you have, um, talking about sabbatical, you had five. Ah, yeah, five and five. So yeah, I, I was, I was, my board allowed me to travel a lot last year um, for my sabbatical, so I came home for five weeks of five projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Eric, you've, you've dabbled in virtual choirs now that we are all under lockdown. And uh, yeah, you're working on another virtual choir thing. And uh, what do you think about virtual choirs? Because uh, around, the, around the internets, at least in my circles, it seems to be a hotter topic than I than I would think. I can you hear me? Because I yeah. just changed my mind. Okay, so um, there are many of my friends who have a very strong opinion about virtual choirs, and they say it's not a choir. And you know, I won't do it because I'm a purist and it's not a choir. And my response to that is, um, stop. Like, don't be, <laughs> don't be a little bitch about it because I. It gets me so upset because this is not about you. This isn't about your purism. This is about your singers needing some community. And your singers needed to do something that's musical. And some, so some singers hate it. Some singers like they don't want to hear the sound of their voice alone when they'll do a recording and they'll mess it up and they'll just you know beat themselves up because they're all perfectionists and um, they'll just have a horrible time by themselves and they won't think about the end result. And I can't tell you how many singers in making this last video was 64 of them. I mean, I didn't do any of the editing. Thank God for Kylie and Michael, but I. Uh, I heard a lot of pushback from singers that are like, I don't want to do this. I'm not interested, blah, blah, blah. And that's totally fine. You don't have to do it. But um, I mean, the, the whole point of a choir is that everyone supports each other. And like, and normally you do it in the moment when you're in rehearsal together and you're all next to each other. But to do it, um, to do it, uh, alone is really isolating. I think psychologically, it's a really difficult thing for a lot of singers. And I mean, if you're a pro singer and you like the sound of your voice and you think you're pretty, then that's fine. You can make a video and you make a beautiful little moment for yourself. But if you're not, if you just want to be, if you want to be part of a community and sing, it's it's a different experience. It depends on you know self-confidence. It depends on how pretty you think you are and how pretty you think your voice is. If yeah. if you're if you don't have super high self-esteem, it's gonna suck. It's gonna right. suck. And in the middle of a pandemic, when you're stuck at home and you're stuck in your head all the time, it's it's not going to be an easy thing. So yeah. I totally loved that I had 64 singers that were willing to do it. And a lot of them wrote to me afterwards and they're like, I'm never going to do this again. I hated it. And then they saw the wow. video and they yeah. And then they saw the video and they're like, I get it now. But the the reward is so delayed, right? The the the, the yeah. difference between submitting your video and hating yourself and then seeing the end result when everyone is together is huge. It's a big uh, differential. It's a big deviation. So that was a big, that was a big issue is them just feeling sort of insecure about sending their material out to you. Not so much yeah. the, the purest, the purest issue of people saying this isn't really, you know, making music together as a choir like that. That problem wasn't as uh, like prevalent for you. 
No, I mean, I see. As soon as the pandemic happened, I, and people were starting to do this, I saw. I mean, how many conductors do I know, and how many of them are my that are tolerated enough to put in my Facebook feed? I mean, a lot of them were just like, uh, "I'm not going to do one." Virtual choir is not choir. Yardy, yardy, yardy. I mean, fine. Yeah. But I, but your yeah. singers want to do something. Like, yeah. I mean, it, then get together and have a Zoom party every Sunday. That's what we do. We do an esoteric happy hour. None of us sings. But I mean, it's it's just to talk about how we're doing, and then I'm I'm doing this sightseeing class with uh, two other nights a week. But and that's also like I have to deal with people's um, self worth. Like, yeah. do I sing well enough? And there's there's this other thing about like um, when someone submits a video for virtual choir, like uh, they're worried that the conductor is going to hear it and kick them out of the choir. Wow. Right? Like people, people, yeah, I mean, there's this whole article that's going around about mourning the loss of choral music. And it's a big deal in this article. Like the, the person is freaking out about like losing her place in the choir because someone will hear her and judge her so harshly that she can't be self-sufficient as a singer. And I mean, maybe you think the esoterics, all of them are self-sufficient, but they're not. And I, I don't expect them to be either. I expect us to be better as a whole than any one part. And I, so I've never, uh, I've never been a huge fan of professional choruses where everyone is self-sufficient. I'm, I'm much more interested in including everybody that works hard and having the weak come along with the strong and, and change roles. Yeah. In my experience, and I'm not dissing your choir, Mark. I hope you know that. My, um, my, uh, I'll, I'll, from my 27 years of experience directing choir is that those that sight read really well perform less well than those that don't sight read. Because the people that don't sight read well internalize the music better and they end up singing it better for an audience. Hmm. They put it in their body better. And when it push comes to shove and you're in a section, the people that sight read well mess up in performance because they've never really gotten out of their head. Okay. And that's a, I, hard to let that one go for me. It's a big blanket <laughs> statement. But I, I mean, I have, I have dealt with hundreds of singers with the esoterics. And my experience in watching them perform is that people that mess up are the best sight readers. And I had this experience in other choirs as well, even in Sweden. Is Margaret home? Yeah, she's uh, just- Hi, honey. Hi. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I just want to, <laughs> I want to throw in my piece about the virtual choir thing. It just okay. The like, do it. People that are watching this live care um, that I don't quite understand all the virtual choir haters because this is the very thing that gets our music out to a much wider audience. I mean, the shares we're getting and the exposure to this stuff is yeah. what's it's making it as mainstream as it can be. And, um, you know, I think people see the stuff we do sometimes as very niche and very, you know, that's just something, you know, the elites do or like the super specialists do something that the that the general public can't couldn't possibly be interested in. But uh, that is that is something that I hope we can break out of uh, in the future uh, as you know, choral music being, I always feel like it's sort of subordinate to like concert music or like traditional classic um, concert music. And 
um, you know, this mentality of keeping it to ourselves or, or, you know, it just is not the way forward. So that that's the only thing I wanted to throw in there. For yeah, the I mean, I, I, I say that I would agree with you, except that to be in a really good virtual choir situation, you have to have a microphone and you have to have a recording device that does a good job, right? And then you have to hire an editor for the video and hire an editor for the audio. And so it's it's a lot of money. So in Seattle, how many how many virtual choir videos have there been? And how does that compare to how many choirs there are? Yeah. Right? Do you think everybody's doing it? I don't think so. I think a lot of groups are just biding their time and hoping this thing is over soon so they could have some community again. Yeah. And uh, and I uh, I am in that boat, um, but I'm you know I'm teaching myself the software so we can do some more virtual choir stuff because I want to get people engaged. I don't want to just do you know everyone get together on Sunday night and drink. Yeah. You know I just I mean drink, show everybody what are you drinking? <laughs> like I mean that's that's just misery to me misery yeah. loving company. So I want to do something, but I just um, what are the options to get together and try to improv? Like to, um, I write about Jumulus, like there's this this web platform where people can jam and the latency is really low and, you know, uh, people can get together and the lag is, is very small. So they could actually come close to this, uh, what a rehearsal situation is like, but it ain't rehearsal. Yeah. You know, so what, what are the options? Yeah. You know, we just kind of, everyone just kind of withers on the vine. That's true. There aren't a lot of, I think Seattle Pro Music did a pretty big one. You guys did one. We've done a few. But I think there's a huge barrier of entry for the virtual choir stuff. you got to have the right yeah. software. And, and to make it, it is actually yeah. quite telling, you know, even if you have everyone singing to a click track, and I've done a few of these already, even if they're singing as precisely as they can to a click track, it's still super hard for everyone to agree exactly where they yeah. do. So it doesn't sound together. Yeah. So you right. need to really realign that stuff up. Yeah. But I mean, my, my point is like, what are they going to do otherwise? Pick up a different hobby? Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, uh, voice lessons, I mean, over Zoom, mm -hmm. like, I just, I don't, I don't know what. So what I, what I decided to do is to teach my uh, ear training class. I do this ear training class that's non-tonal. And so I have like eight or nine students that are doing it. It's twice a week, an hour and a half each time. It's like a university class and it's a game and you could drink while you do it. Um, and it's uh, it's great for building musicianship. And a lot of my students at Cornish, um, you know, a lot of my students when I was at UW um, learned these games. And uh, I think it's a really great way to spend time together because everyone can mute and do the game by themselves. So if you remember your sight singing classes, like if everyone sang at the same time, there's no way you could hear yourself, right? So, but what we do uh, is I sing, I, I play cards with them and I sing the answers in a delay. So they get a chance to try the answer and then they know whether they're right or not. But I mean, even that's not the same. It's, it's building their skill level, but it's not making music. It's just building literacy. Right. So, but it's, it's the only thing that I could think of doing that would involve a modicum of people. But even right. that, I mean, esoteric is a chamber choir and I have nine in that class. So <laughs> what is everybody else doing? Like crying in their soup? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, or just drinking, drinking heavily, or like trying to overachieve, like everyone's trying to get the best shape of their lives, or you know, right to come out, to best bust out of their um their quarantine with like a rocking body. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're making a new garden, right? Yeah. You're like you're completely transforming your lawn. 
I'm on the eighth floor in a country where I own no land. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> so Eric, how do, how do you think this this uh, pandemic will change things after you're, after we're through this? Are, are you are you planning on another concert season? Um, ha, are you gonna how are you gonna do it? Um, have you thought about any of that stuff? Uh, yes, I thought about it. Um, I obviously can't predict anything. Uh, I have uh, so because last year was my sabbatical and because I spent so much time in Brazil, I've really not followed uh, the news. I decided to like take a news vacation. And that's why like David had to tell me, don't come home from Brazil. Like don't get on a plane, it's really not safe. Um, so I, uh, I think it's been really good for my mental health to not follow the news. Um, and I am, I listen to the news here in Brazil because I wanna work on my Portuguese, but I also um, uh, am worried about the quarantine here in Sao Paulo. Like, uh, so I, um, and I'm getting to your question, but m my, um, it's very hard to predict how things are gonna go here. And that will determine when I get to New York and that'll determine when I get home. So I think uh, that this, you know, getting over this pandemic is going to be several months or years in the making. And I think it's actually gonna change people over time, the longer it lasts. So um, as we very cautiously get back to normal, um, I think that people are going to not want to gather in groups. I think it's going to affect concert audiences. Um, I think it's going to affect ensembles, but um, I think ensembles will still still occur no matter who sings in them. Um, I think some ensembles will probably fold because they're not going to be able to afford it. But um, I think uh, it's going to be it's gonna to be tough to see, or it's gonna be really interesting to see who survives and who doesn't in terms of arts organizations. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see, I, I'm trying to go through my roster of singers. I know that people are not gonna to go to rehearsal unless they can wear a mask or unless they can socially distance. And we're, we rehearse in a sanctuary where people can really, um, be spread out and we could be successful with music if I choose it correctly um, or choose it to be sung like in a wide open space. Um, I foresee live streaming the first few concerts that we do rather than having a live audience. Yeah, I think that that's going to happen. And um, I really hope that the, by the beginning of next year, we can actually have a concert. Um, I currently am planning to do a concert in October and another in December. Um, we had concerts scheduled for those weekends, but I actually moved all of our 2020 programming to 2021. And what I want to do with the concerts at the end of this year is um, uh, retrospective stuff. So have the audience or have the singers vote on pieces and to have them think about um, singing them six feet apart, like having all the singers, like with, with that kind of spacing, like what kind of pieces would be, um, uh, doable in that in that kind of um, you're gonna have to require me i i want them to yeah i i mean i'm thinking september but again everything's changing like here um the the quarantine ends on um may 11th but uh the quarantine uh, like on friday i think the governor of sao paulo is going to extend the quarantine so as things things will get pushed out and <clears throat> 
I, I mean, I've had three flights canceled in three consecutive months. So yeah. I just, I don't know when I'm going to get home. And um, so what I'm thinking is that we will probably meet on Zoom and do rehearsals like in sectionals for the first few weeks. And then we would eventually work, uh, meet in person and, and socially distance. But I, I mean, I want to do this with the people that are comfortable with it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know. I could be talking out my ass. It's really hard to know. be in, in the business of, of giving live performances because we rely so much on, on, you know, it's part of the experience is when audiences gather and experience the art together. And yep. uh, something Gus Denhart, interesting uh, podcast I had with him, he said, yep. you know, the audience gets transfixed before any music is made. In fact, right yep. when, by the space. By the sure. space and just that moment where the, where the artists, where the musicians are, are, their attention is captured by the conductor, just that beginning at that moment you know, everyone's already engaged. And yeah, uh, I mean, how can you how can you not walk into Holy Rosary and not be changed by that yeah. space? Right. And we sing there all the time. You've been there and recorded us or um, or St. Joe's, like the, the, the huge churches. I mean, I know that people have their baggage with Catholicism, but I mean, when you walk into a space like that, it's it's an amazing structure and um, far before the concerts even happen. Yeah, I and totally agree with that. And one thing with live streaming concerts, I mean, I think we're going to have to do the same thing. Um, but I, I really worry that, and I hate to say this, but it'll get old. The live streaming concert thing, that people will just lose interest in in experiencing live, like to go on their computer and to and to like listen to a concert. Maybe they won't listen to it the same way. But I, I worry yeah, but they're doing that with the Met. They're going to listening to opera. There, I mean, I mean, people are always looking at screens for television. So, I mean, I know that it'll get old, but that'll just mean that people, does that mean that people give up on choral music? I don't think so. I think that means that they'll, they can't wait for a real concert to happen again. I hope you're right. Um, you know, and I think live stream is totally a step above virtual choir. Yeah. Right. I mean, the musicians are together. So, yeah. so we have to find, I mean, for me, the search is going to be for a repertoire that is surround sound repertoire. And not because I want to surround the audience, but because I want the singers to be far apart, right? So there's uh, there's going to be this whole movement, the uh, whatever it is, a transitional movement in um, in choral music where we're writing surround sound pieces so that we're or social distancing pieces, not not that they are for um, virtual choir, but they're for people that can't stand together. Yeah you know, in sections. So I'm already thinking of that. And luckily the last few pieces I wrote were first around sound choir, like this thing at Yale that I wrote and I wrote a John Muir piece that was for three choirs that surround the audience. So I'm I'm all already in that mindset. I love it. I love the idea of surrounding the audience. So okay. um, yeah, I'm reading what Christine has written about um, artists like throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. I, that's, I'm, my entire mission with the esoterics is that, right? Do something new, challenge your singers, challenge your audience. And this is just another challenge. It's not yeah. the end of anything. If it's the end of something that you didn't have anything to begin with. Yeah. My concern is that this is at the expense of all this time we put in, all this extra time we put in. Now that we can't perform, we have to create digital content for people to consume. So yeah. that, and that takes time and money. And uh, I, yeah, but so did concerts. Yeah, but we could take we could bring in ticket sales 
to help offset that. And I, in fact, uh, this kind of ties into something I've been making some noise about and, and we'll announce maybe in a bit, but we're trying, you know, we need, I think it would be great if we could be compensated for all these virtual choir videos that we're doing and all the effort that we're putting into them. So I, yeah, I'm going to try to, I've been talking to Josh about um, restructuring scribe music to, to be a place where we take in subscription money and, and offer money for, give artists money for, for their digital content. But I, I do think, you know, as we are not allowed to be in concert venues anymore, that we should be careful not to just, you know, throw everything up there for consumption without thinking about how we're gonna get compensated. That's a whole nother Yeah, I mean, I'm more concerned about the art than the compensation. Yeah. So, um, but I direct a volunteer choir. It's a, it's a different story. So I, um, I mean, I know that my income is going to suffer for, during this entire thing, but I'm much more passionate about the art than worried about my income. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that it's going to suck a year from now but I'm still going to do it. Yeah. I mean, at least right now, the way I'm thinking is I'm going to do it. And if I have to do it from Brazil, I'll do it from Brazil. Right. I don't know. It's cheaper to live here anyway. <laughs> Are you going to stay there? Well, I mean, if I, if all I could do is make digital content of my singers, <laughs> then yes, I will stay here. I don't know. Eric, don't there know. is a way we can make money off of our digital content. And I'm going to show you the way. I'm just okay. going to Really? Wait, yeah. does that have to do with porn? Like what? <laughs> Mark. Porn. <laughs> okay. Coral porn. <laughs> yeah. Corn. C H O R N. Corn. <laughs> oh my God. Please. Trademark. Trademark. <laughs> Eric, I've run out of all the things I want to talk to you about. Is there anything that you wanted to throw in there or talk about before we call no. it all good? No, I have no agenda. My only agenda was to have fun. Good. So, and I made fun of Penny, and I, um, <laughs> I, I don't know anyone. Is anyone else typing other than Christine and Penny? Hi, you guys. Thanks Just, for typing. Yeah. 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 Um, I'll I'll uh, direct message Penny about the racism in peanut gallery. Peanut it has gallery. to do with peanuts and and monkeys. Oh, so, um, yeah, exactly. So, uh, all right. But I, is there anything else you want to know? No, I think I, I think that's good. I think we had a good talk and I think this was fun. And uh, I and miss I, you, baby. I miss you. Oh, I know. I'm glad to see that you're well over there living it up in uh I'm good. Yeah, I mean I'm not living it up. It's not like I'm yeah. It's those not. buildings that look like you're living it up. It's like you're Yeah, I mean the, my building is smaller than those. And that what you saw before I died, the computer died, is Paulista Avenue, which is kind of Brazil's fifth avenue. Like um you know, the Sao Paulo is the largest city in South America, and there are 12 million people here, and they have a shopping district that is basically over there. <laughs> Not that I can go there, but right. I have been there. Nice. Yeah. Well, Eric, until the next time I see you face-to-face, -face, you take care and you stay healthy and don't, don't get crazy. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Say hi to Margaret. Give her a kiss. I'll do. Okay, all right. Thank Yay. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>